This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings and welcome to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. The topic of today's discussion is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, where we'll specifically focus on the diagnostic approach, as well as a new insight into the methodology and generation of clinical guidelines. We're fortunate today to be joined by two um, accomplished guests, Drs. Ganesh Raghu and Kevin Wilson, who, who co-authored a clinical practice guideline summary for practicing clinicians for the diagnosis of IPF, and this was an annual summary of the international guideline published in the Blue Journal in September 2018 from the American Thoracic Society, the European Respiratory Society, the Japanese Respiratory Society, and uh, the Latin American uh, Thoracic Society. In addition, they've authored an interesting article that was published this month in the annals entitled Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis Guideline Recommendations, Need for Adherence to Institute of Medicine Methodology. So Dr. Ragu is a professor of medicine and lab medicine in the Division of Pulmonary, Sleep, and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he also serves as the director for the Center of ILD at the University of Washington. Dr. Wilson is a professor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine and is the chief of documents and patient education for the American Thoracic Society. So welcome and thank you to you both, Drs. Ganesh Garugu and Kevin Wilson for joining the podcast, and and I'm really looking forward to an interesting discussion. IPF has been an important part of of, of my career, um, and to see us advance to the point where we can actually talk about guidelines and treatment has really been uh, has really been a wonderful uh, development, and certainly in my career and those of others. Um, so, Kevin, let's start with you. So, in general, tell us about the impact of ATS clinical practice guidelines in general. And how about the published guidelines in IPF specifically? Sure. Uh, thanks, Greg. I appreciate the, the invitation. Um, guidelines in general have been consistently shown to improve adherence with appropriate clinical practices and to um, improve clinical outcomes. One of the, the best examples is that adherence to guideline-compliant antibiotics uh, has been shown to decrease mortality. Uh, but guidelines don't just help the clinicians. They have helped the ATS as a society as well. Guidelines tend to be heavily cited, thereby helping the, the journals. And the IPS guidelines in particular seem to be heavily cited. Uh, the 2011 IPS guidelines remain the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine's most highly cited article. And two of the top five um, cited articles uh, with the Blue Journal are related to the uh, idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. So guidelines help both the society as a whole as well as the ATS specifically. Very well said, Kevin. So I think it would be interesting for our audience to hear uh, about the process of how a clinical practice guideline gets developed from initial proposal uh, all the way to publication. And, and if you can specifically comment on the important role of the methodologist, I think that would be interesting for our audience. Sure. So whenever somebody decides that they want to develop a, a clinical practice guideline, they submit a proposal to the ATS. Uh, proposals happen every summer, and those proposals are then reviewed by the Assembly Planning Committee, the Documents Committee, and then finally the Program Review Subcommittee. Uh, those uh, projects that are approved 
then begin by assembling an expert committee. And the expert committee tends to be diverse. They tend to be multidisciplinary, so not just physicians, but also nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists. Depending on the content of the guideline, you may have pulmonologists and cardiologists, um, but also diverse in terms of the uh, geographic location that the individuals come from, the seniority of the panel, the gender, and ethnicity. And also, uh, most panels include one or two patients on them as well. Once the panel is uh, composed, then we vet conflict of interest disclosures, and then finally develop the questions that, going to, that are going to be addressed in the, the guideline. Um, once the questions have been developed by the expert panel, that's when the methodologists that you referred to come into the picture. Um, sometimes we have one methodologist, but usually we have uh, small teams of methodologists on each guideline. And what they do is they take the questions that the panel have identified as clinically important questions, and they'll perform a systematic search. Uh, they'll select studies based on pre-specified um, inclusion criteria, extract data, do meta-analyses. Uh, they'll summarize the data, rate the quality of it, and then finally they're going to present it to the expert committee. The expert committee will uh, listen to the uh, presentation by the methodologist, and then they'll discuss the evidence, and then the experts make their recommendations based upon the evidence. Um, finally, the document is written, usually led by the co-chairs. It undergoes peer review by multiple content experts, multiple cycles of revision um, ensue, and then finally, uh, the, a guideline has to be approved by the co-sponsoring societies. And that's pretty much the um, the lifespan of a guideline. Yeah, and that's very, very nicely summarized, Kevin. And it's important to, for the audience to know this is, again, a, a rigorous and iterative process that has input, as you mentioned, uh, from a lot of different experts. Um, so these are really robust uh, guidelines. So you mentioned the questions. And one of the things I, I, I ask you to comment on is this particular guideline was organized uh, around eight questions, which are summarized in, in your summary in Table 2. That are, that are relevant to the diagnosis of IPS. So how were they chosen? So we, uh, the ATS limits the number of questions to uh, less than eight because we find that because of the methodologic requirements, if we try and tackle more than eight, um, the guidelines tend to be unreasonably delayed. And so the limitation of eight is largely to, to ensure that the guidelines are finished in a, in a timely fashion. What happens is when the proposal I just described is submitted, uh, the proposal asks for some uh, preliminary questions. And then once the full committee is composed, those questions are sent out to the committee uh, by an electronic survey. Uh, and this is an opportunity for the committee members to review the questions that were proposed in the application and make comments about it. They're also given sort of an open-ended question that gives them the possibility of uh, you know, proposing some questions of their own that were not in the, the initial application. The lead methodologist will then review the responses to the survey, um, process them, and then send them back. And so going back might be anywhere from 10 to 20 questions. The committee is then asked to read every question, uh, to rate it on a scale of 1 to 9, and then the methodologist will determine the median score for each question rank the questions in order based on the median score for each, and then the top eight will be, be selected. Perfect. 
And last question before we turn it over to Dr. Ragu and to go over the guidelines particularly. Um, I, I think an important point here is that when guidelines are, are, are advanced, uh, obviously recommendations are graded in terms of their strength and, and the, the preponderance of the evidence. So what's the difference for our audience? What's the difference between a strong and a conditional recommendation, and, and what are the implications for our patients uh, and for clinicians primarily, and maybe you want to touch on the impact on policymakers as well, but certainly have the impact on, on patients and their physicians. Yeah, this is really important, and it's a commonly misunderstood um, part of guidelines, guideline recommendations, and, and the grading. So um, beginning with for clinicians, if a recommendation is strong, what it's saying is that this is the right thing to do for more than 95% of your patients. In other words, it's saying just do it. Don't slow down. Don't think about it. Just do it. Or you could look at it as if a colleague of yours did not follow this recommendation, you'd be willing to call him or her out and say that they did the wrong thing. Um, in contrast, a weak or a conditional recommendation means it's the right thing to do for more than 50% of the patients, but it may not be the right thing for a sizable minority of patients. It's saying slow down, think about it, maybe discuss it with the patient before deciding whether or not to follow it. And in this case, if a colleague decided not to follow the recommendation, you'd probably not be willing to call them out as having done the wrong thing. You might say that's clinical style or, or equipoise. Uh, in terms of patients, a strong recommendation is saying that most patients would want to follow the recommended course of action, and very few would not, whereas a weak or conditional recommendation would still be saying that most would want to follow the recommended course of uh, action, but many um, may, may choose not to. And then finally, for policymakers, a strong recommendation is um, amenable or susceptible to being uh, turned into a performance metric, whereas a weak or conditional recommendation, except under very extenuating circumstances, uh, would not become a performance measure. That's a great segue, Kevin. Um, so let's turn our attention to the, the summary of the clinical practice guideline uh, in particular. So, Dr. Raghu, again, thank you for joining. Um, you know, one of the core points and one of the core uh, tenets of, of the approach to diagnosis of IPF is really the, the four diagnostic categories that you've developed based on HRCT and histologic patterns. So I want to start with that. Just can you review briefly for us those four diagnostic categories, because that will serve as a springboard for uh, the rest of our discussion. Uh, thank you very much, Greg, and I, too, uh, want to echo what Kevin Wilson already did, and we welcome the opportunity for this podcast to be able to communicate to the listener uh, uh, for this particular important aspect of the guidelines. So, so uh, the guideline panel for this 2018 uh, guidelines updated the diagnostic criteria for IPF. As you know, we had given a criteria back in 2011. So previously defined patterns of the usual interstitial pneumonia, which is the hallmark for the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, was refined to patterns of uh, UIP, and then also refined to include a pattern of probable UIP and indeterminate for UIP, and also gave specific criteria where an alternate diagnosis will need to be entertained based on those specific features. We also had the radiologist and the pathologist really discuss this in a very good 
multidisciplinary manner and agreed that the patterns must be the same as far as terminologies are concerned. And this was different than what we had done in 2011. In 2011 guidelines, we had introduced a term called possible usual interstitial pneumonia, and that became a little confusion in the practice uh, in the bedside where the possible UIP became a major problem. And so we refined the criteria and eliminated the word possible altogether. So in a sense, we have refined the criteria, the four criteria. The UIP criteria is a definite UIP based on histopathology as well as radiology. But if the radiology pattern has a honeycombing pattern and the lower lobe distribution, uh, peripherals, uh, reticulation without significant ground glass changes uh, would be consistent with the definite UIP pattern. And these patterns are all very precisely noted in the guideline as well as in the summary uh, in the um, annals of the Thoracic Society published. The probable UIP has got many similarities with the UIP criteria with the exception of one important criteria which was uh, lack of honeycombing. But we also introduced the term traction bronchiectasis and bronchioloectasis to the probable UIP pattern. So it's almost very similar to the UIP pattern, but the honeycombing is not present. And then there is a, a pattern that we consider as indeterminate for UIP, and what we mean by that is it could still be UIP, but we couldn't determine whether it was UIP or something else. But those patterns radiographically uh, did have reticulation subplurally and lower lobe predominant as well. And then we give a, a, a number of precise uh, uh, criteria that would uh, favor an alternate diagnosis. And these could include multiple cysts and micronodules, upper lobe distributions, and those specific criteria have been well written in the guidelines as well as in the summary. Similarly, we also gave the, a precise criteria histopathologically so that the pathologist could also um, utilize those criteria to say probable or indeterminate. And this was very important because you know, they, we provided a nice algorithm, which we'll get into hopefully, and a table that the clinician could use it with a multidisciplinary discussion and make an accurate diagnosis of IPR. So, uh, Ganesh, that's a great segue into, in fact, the next part of the discussion, which is in the diagnostic algorithm. Uh, so, um, so just please give us a high-level summary of that algorithm uh, for our audience. Uh, it's Figure Two um, in in the annals uh, in the annals summary, uh, and really this diagnostic algorithm is the highlight of the clinical practice guideline. So, so Ganesh, take us through it. Okay, thank you, Greg. Again, first of all, this guideline was written for the patients suspected to have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And we state that the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis should be considered in all adult patients with unexplained chronic exertional dyspnea who commonly presents with cough and bipasal crackles and some finger clubbing. And the incidence of IPF increases with the older age and presentation typically occurring in the sixth and seventh decades. Occasionally, patients may be younger than 50 years of age, especially if there is a familial predisposition. So, that said, so for this patient suspected to have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the clinician therefore should be keyed in to the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis as the following. One of the most important things is, first and foremost, are there any other conditions 
or causes that could be attributable to the patient's symptoms and interstitial lung disease. And therefore, it is extremely important to eliminate two important categories. One is environmental causes or drug associated with interstitial lung disease or any other temporal relationship to the onset of the disease, to the change in the environment. And the second one is connective tissue disease because connective tissue disease is an important uh, uh, feature of uh, idiopathic uh, interstitial pneumonias or interstitial pneumonias. So the clinician must be prudent and carefully eliminate environmental exposures as well as connective tissue disease to the point that the panelists felt that this is so mandatory that every patient with interstitial lung disease must be uh, approached with a detailed history elicitation as well as evaluation for connective tissue disease and we provided what we call motherhood statements. That means that this is mandatory. There is no reason to question this. Just take a good history and eliminate the connective tissue disease. And once you eliminate that, you reevaluate the patient with the radiologist. So you start with a multidisciplinary discussion, discuss the pattern of the CTs, and see whether they fit into the probable UIP, early definite UIP, and the criteria, the four categories that we describe. If the CT pattern then has a precise pattern, then the algorithm takes you through if you have a UIP and if you do not have any environmental factors or conditions or connective tissue disease that you have eliminated by clinical examination, then you re-evaluate through a multidisciplinary discussion and go over, well, is, have we really ruled out the connective tissue disease? Have we really ruled out the environmental exposure? And if there is any question there, then there was also a conditional recommendation made for bronchoalveolar lavage to look into the lymphocyte profile or differential cellular profile because the increased lymphocytes will sway you, the diagnosis away from IPS because in general, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is not an inflammatory, especially not a lymphocyte-mediated disease. And therefore, a discussion should take there and subject patients to bronchoalveolar lavage if there is proper laboratory resources to assess the bronchoalveolar lavage. And then if you still do not have a diagnosis, then looking at the patterns of the CT, then the multidisciplinary discussions should be approached to see whether they need further diagnostic pathways for histopathology. And that includes transbronchial lung biopsies, cryobiopsies, surgical lung biopsy, and made recommendations for these lung biopsies categories, and then decide in a person who does not have a risk for surgical lung biopsy to consider uh, surgical lung biopsy for patients who do not have the CT pattern of definite UIP. So Greg, what we did was this, we provided a lot of emphasis on the CT pattern. And the most important thing at this multidisciplinary discussion is to see whether the pattern is a UIP pattern, that means the honeycombing, that means the lower low predominant, sub-plural sub reticulation without ground glass, without air trapping. And then in the right context, you do not need the lung biopsy. But in other patients, then depending on the patterns of the CT, then depending on the patient's medical conditions, providing that there are no surgical complications risk, then subject them to the invasive histopathology diagnosis. Now, if there is on the, uh, on the workup, if there is 
an identifiable cause, or if there is a connective tissue disease, serology-wise or clinical features, then a specific diagnosis could be made without going through the algorithm of bronchial lavage or surgical lung biopsy and make a specific diagnosis because UIP does not equate to the diagnosis of IPF. UIP is nonspecific, but in the right context, it is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And the right context is actually the elimination of the environmental factors, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, occupational diseases, drug-associated interstitial lung disease, and specifically connective tissue uh, disease. So that's how the algorithm was created in a very uh, precise way, emphasizing the multidisciplinary discussions at several steps, unlike the 2011 guidelines. In the 2011 guidelines, we emphasized the multidisciplinary discussion, but didn't feel the need for multidisciplinary discussion if the patient had the HRCT pattern of UIP pattern. In this particular situation, 2018 guidelines, we revised it to say, well, multidisciplinary discussion is important even if the patient has a UIP criteria by the CT because maybe there is a serology features, maybe there is an environmental factor, and maybe a bronchial lavage is appropriate to see if there is a lymphocyte predominant inflammation that would then sway you away from the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So what we did with this diagnostic algorithm, we attempted to help the clinician to make or ascertain the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in a precise manner utilizing the multidisciplinary discussions, especially the radiologist involved uh, would be a multidisciplinary discussion, and if we subject a patient to the uh, histopathology involved the um, pathologist, and if there is any serological problems that uh, pulmonologists cannot address, then involve the rheumatologists as well on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis is what we emphasized in this uh, approach. That's a, a great summary, Ganesh. And I wanted to I wanted to get into some of the details um, and a couple of things that uh, I wanted you to clarify. So one of those is is exactly the issue of of obtaining histopathology. And you know, some of the feedback I've heard from the guidelines is that these guidelines are more pro biopsy, pro surgical lung biopsy, than others. Mm -hmm. And and I know that was not the intention. Um, nor uh, if you read it carefully, I think the the, the whole message, but. But can you clarify when should a clinician recommend a surgical lung biopsy? And I'd like, if you can, to specifically address the role of biopsy in probable in the categorization of probable uh, UIP and IPF. So, so let's uh, let's um, talk about that and, and give us some specific guidance about surgical lung biopsies, and then we'll talk about uh, other histopathologic options. Okay, thanks, Greg. And that's a, again an important aspect of this guideline, which I believe is somewhat misinterpreted based on the recommendations that we have provided. This is to echo what Kevin already made earlier on, is the implication and interpretation of the strong recommendations versus conditional recommendations. You will note that in the guidelines, we have made conditional recommendations for diagnostic interventions, the, with the exception of the CT pattern. And so what we did was the panel recommended against tissue biopsy. That includes transbronchial, that includes transbronchial cryobiopsy, that includes surgical lung biopsy if a patient has the HRCT pattern of UIP. So therefore, the multidisciplinary discussions with the radiologist to clarify, confirm the pattern as UIP is crucial. And once you have that, 
And in the right clinical context, as we have discussed, then you do not need a surgical lung biopsy. So it was strongly recommended against transbronchial, transbronchial chia biopsy and surgical lung biopsy if the patient has the HRCD pattern of UIP in the right clinical context. So that's very clear. There shouldn't be any confusion in that situation. Now, then we utilize the other patterns which the clinicians are beginning to recognize because the CT patterns and CT is being done more readily and appropriately. So now we have to decide if a patient has probable UIP or if the patient has indeterminate for UIP or an alternative diagnosis. The panel suggested, now again, this is suggestion, not a recommendation. Recommendation has got certain implications. Suggestion is what the weak recommendations are. So if you have the pattern of probable UIP and indeterminate for UIP or alternate diagnosis, the panel suggested to perform bronchoval lavage. And the evidence was low, but presence of lymphocyte count would sway you from the diagnosis away from the IPF and probably make you think in terms of the diagnosis of sarcoid or hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which are all lymphocyte-mediated disease. And a surgical lung biopsy was recommended or suggested, not recommended, in patients whose surgical risks are low. And that's extremely important. We, we state that, but unfortunately, it's in a very small footnote in that algorithm. And most people, unfortunately, do not read that. But these patients whose surgical risks are low, those patients could undergo a surgical lung biopsy. And again, it is a conditional recommendation, which means then you will need to take into the context of clinical criteria or clinical features and discuss with the patients for the preference of options to subject them to the surgical lung biopsy. The panel did not make any recommendations for or against the conventional transbronchial lung biopsies. And the data was very weak, the evidence was weak, but felt that there needs to be more data needs to be come up with future trials before we could make a recommendation for or against transbronchial lung biopsy. And that was true for also for the transbronchial lung cryobiopsy. So in a nutshell then about the biopsy, if a person has a probable UIP pattern, this is where the crux of the matter is, where the confusion apparently is. The probable UIP pattern has a higher probability of the patient to have UIP if the surgical lung biopsy is obtained. But then, in the context of an environmental exposure, let's say, the probable UIP pattern in the CT may have histopathological features of hypersensitivity pneumonitis rather than the UIP associated with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So in that situation, the guideline actually provides a little bit more flexibility for decision-making process between the clinician and the patient in the right clinical context, as long as there is no surgical, surgical risk for complications, then you could subject them to a surgical lung biopsy for a clarification of the histopathology diagnosis of UIP or other UIP-like, especially the hyper chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Now, the risk for the surgical lung biopsy should be emphasized that these patients should not be considered for surgical lung biopsy, even if they have probable or indeterminate or alternate, and these should be, it should be patients who have severe hypoxemia at rest 
with or without oxygen and have moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension with or without echocardiogram, with or echocardiogram or right heart catheterization and a diffusion capacity less than 25% after corrected for hemoglobin. These three important clinical features are necessary for the physician to be reminded that those patients, even though they may be younger people, even though they have an indeterminate for UIP pattern, those patients should not be subjected for surgical lung biopsy because the perioperative, intraoperative, and postoperative risk, including immortality, is significant. So we recommend it, really, these patients should not be subjected for surgical lung biopsy if they have their risk. And I think that's what the clinicians are, unfortunately, not paying attention to and just arbitrarily interpreting the recommendations that we made conditionally to get surgical lung biopsies in a patient who have probably wiped it. So, uh, Ganesh, let me ask you a specific, a specific question or give you a scenario. So, um, 62-year-old ex-smoker who on extensive history uh, and exam you don't identify another cause with serologic workup, et cetera, um, who's got a probable UIP pattern, so lower low predominant, peripheral reticulation, um, and but no honeycombing. In that patient, if after a discussion of the risks and benefits, if, if a decision is made that, that you can make a confident diagnosis of, of IPF, is, is that is the clinician making a wrong decision not, not obtaining a surgical lung biopsy at that point? No, you, you, you actually described the scenario exactly what we have described as a patient suspected to have IPF. Okay, good. And there is no clinical features to favor the diagnosis of connective tissue disease, including serology, so I suspect serology negative, and then a prudent physician like yourself have taken a good history and was not able to elicit any history suggestive of an environmental exposure. So you've got this clinical scenario already out there, and your clinical examination has got no clues that there is a systemic disease and you have probably UIP. And that is the beauty of this guideline that we provide, a way of uh, narrowing down the absolute need for surgical lung biopsy. And for this clinical patient that, or clinical scenario that you just described, no, I would be feeling comfortable with a high confident diagnosis of IPF, and that's exactly what the guideline also stated. Perfect, and that's great because that's where I think some of the confusion is, and I'm and I'm glad that we were able to address that. So, so Ganesh, how about how about the transbronchial cryobiopsies? I know there have been some modifications and advances over the last year or two that that appear to have reduced complications. So, so for what diagnosis do you think the cryobiopsy has the highest yield, and where do you see its role in the future? Are we going to do it more often, less often? Take out your crystal ball and give me some insights about about cryobiopsy. Okay. The lung cryobiopsy procedure is a new, relatively new technique that is um, uh, that facilitates the bronchoscopist familiar with the techniques to get a tissue via endo via fiber optic bronchoscopy a tissue size more than the conventional forceps biopsy. So therefore, the cryobiopsy in theory for a little bit more tissue than the transbronchial conventional facet biopsy is attractive. And attractive not just for patients suspected to have IPF, attractive for a diagnostic intervention where a histopathology might make a difference to get a better piece, bigger piece than the conventional forceps biopsy and ask the pathologist to be able to make a histopathology diagnosis. And that's true, therefore, for 
all interstitial lung diseases of unknown etiology as a new onset. And that said, there is increasing data now coming up with most of them a retrospective study, and there is one prospective study that has actually just published in the Blue Journal, uh, a study done in France uh, where a prospective study for 21 patients were subjected to cryobiopsy and uh, the conventional thoracoscopic lung biopsy or surgical lung biopsy in the same lobe in 21 patients, a small number of patients in a pilot study done in one center with one pathology reviewing it, gave a, a study that the report is in the Blue Journal was poor concordance with the histopathology for accuracy of diagnosis between the cryobiopsy and the surgical lung biopsy uh, that is conventionally done. The problem with the study is it's a very small study and one center and there is methodological issues. Therefore, the jury is not out there yet whether the diagnostic accuracy is predictable with the cryobiopsy compared to the supposedly gold standard way of making a histopathology diagnosis. So the jury is not out there, and the methodologists reviewed the data available at the time, which included several data of the cryobiopsy retrospective and some prospective studies, and unfortunately did not come up with compelling evidence to make recommendations. There was a greater enthusiasm among the, some committee members to, to encourage the use of transplantal biopsy, but there were relative risks as well. So the recommendation made in the guideline, at least for a patient suspected to have IPF, we could not make a recommendation for or against transplantal biopsy, but we made a remark that among centers and experts who are familiar with the transbronchial cryobiopsy technique as well as the facilities with a backup uh, surgical needs if the patient has complications, they could go ahead and continue to utilize the cryobiopsy in their center, but we didn't want this to be a blanket statement, and therefore the guideline could not make a recommendation for or against transbronchial biopsy. Now, you asked me to look into the crystal ball and see where this is heading. Based on that Romagnali's paper that I alluded to, the small pilot study of 21 patients, that at least throws a little bit of a curveball in terms of thinking about cryobiopsy. So at least at this moment, it should dissuade clinicians to consider cryobiopsy at the moment unless there is new evidence. And as I speak, there is new evidence that is brewing in a large, relatively larger study uh, done in Australia, a prospective study, a, an abstract for a late-breaking abstract has been just submitted to the ERS, and we'll see how that data unfolds. So therefore, until a diagnostic accuracy of the cryobiopsy, as far as histopathology is concerned, in the surgical lung biopsy, conventionally done in the same lobe at more or less the same time, I don't think we can make a, a recommendation for or against transbronchial lung biopsy as of today being June 13th of 2019. But that said, I think it is a, an attractive procedure. We will need to wait 
and see whether the diagnostic accuracy with the inter-observer variability in this prospective design that has been uh, uh, done and completed in Australia. Uh, 65 patients have been subjected to cryobiopsy and the surgical lung biopsy in the same general anesthesia in the same sitting. So it will be exciting data to look for and see what the data unfolds and it will be presented in the ERS. So we need to wait for that until we can make a recommendation for or against cryobiopsy uh, for not only patients with suspected IPF, but for interstitial lung disease of unknown etiology who might benefit from the histopathology clarifications. Oh, great. So, again, more to come, I guess, about the cryobiopsy. Uh, Kevin, I want to throw it back to you. I have some other couple of questions for, for Dr. Ragu, but I wanted to come back to you. Uh, so the more recent publication, um, looking at the IPF guidelines that you and Ganesh published uh, in the annals, used a different approach, and it is the modified core process. So, um, And it's a very interesting paper that I'm obviously going to ask you the highlights on, but a couple of things. Number one, what is the core process, and how does it different? How does it differ, I should say, uh, from the Institute of Medicine recommendations? Um, tell us a little bit about the study and what you found, and then we'll come back uh, about your and Dr. Raghu's uh, um, really insight as to how it will impact future clinical guidelines. So tell us about the core, the study, what you found, and how it will impact. Sure. So the, uh, the core process is a um, modified Delphi process that's conducted by an electronic survey. And so what we do is we take um, questions in a PICO format, P PICO meaning that it very specifically states what the population of interest is, the intervention, the comparator, and the outcomes of, of interest. So we, uh, at the top of the page, the electronic survey, we state the, uh, the PICO question. And then we ask the respondents uh, three types of questions. One, we ask them to choose um, between like a, a strong recommendation for the intervention, a conditional recommendation for the intervention, a strong recommendation against the intervention, conditional recommendation against the intervention, or no recommendation at all. Uh, we also ask them to choose a quality of evidence ranging from high, moderate, low, or very low. And then finally, we leave an open um, comment box. Um, so once the, um, the survey has been completed, what we do is we look at the number of uh, respondents who have chosen um, to recommend for the intervention versus those that have selected to recommend against the intervention. If there's less than 70% agreement amongst the respondents, then this would suggest that this question needs to go through the conventional process of a full systematic review to inform the guideline committee um, and their process of making a recommendation. On the other hand, if uh, we get greater than 70% agreement, so greater than 70% of the panel chooses for the intervention or greater than 70% choose against the intervention, then we believe that a systematic review is not required and that a recommendation can, can be made. Uh, but, the, but obviously the, the concern that's been expressed is, well, how do you know if you haven't had a systematic review whether or not the recommendations derived through a Delphi process are, are accurate or not? So what we did is we we took um, we, we took experts in IPF uh, that were not on the guideline panel. We recruited them to participate. Uh, these were people that we um, they were similar to the 
the guideline panel itself in terms of the number of pathologists, the number of radiologists, the number of pulmonologists, the distribution between North America and Europe. Um, and we made sure that they had no working knowledge of the guidelines, systematic reviews, or the guidelines recommendations. So they were totally unaware. And we asked them the same questions that were being asked in the guideline. And we used the core process I just described to determine what their uh, recommendations would have been. And then we compared those recommendations from the actual guideline recommendations. And what we found is that if you use the core process, out of the 10 questions, nine of them had greater than 70% consensus, meaning that nine of them would have yielded a recommendation either for or against uh, the intervention that we were asking about. And then amongst those nine recommendations, eight of them were exactly the same as um, those made by the guideline panel. So in other words, all those recommendations could conceivably have been made without the time and effort and cost that goes into doing a, a full systematic review. Um, what I thought was most telling is that I mentioned that it was eight of the nine that were the same. So if you look at the one that was different, the core process uh, made a conditional recommendation uh, for cryobiopsy, but the comment box was said repeatedly, but only in uh, experienced centers. The guideline um, panel made no recommendation for cryobiopsy, but then wrote in the text, but it's okay to continue in experienced centers. So we had, to, we had to count that as a discordant recommendation because in terms of categorization, the core process um, made a, a conditional recommendation for it and the guideline made no recommendation. But in the spirit of the message being conveyed, it was practically uh, identical. Um, yeah, and so it we also um, looked at the time uh, and um, spent and compared it um, for the core process versus the um, guideline process, and the differences were, were, were remarkable. The, um, the IOM adherent process took just under 600 work hours compared to fewer than 50 work hours for the uh, core process. Wow. Um, I mean, to me, this is uh, really impactful work, Kevin and Ganesh. I, you know, I've participated in some clinical practice guidelines and, and and both in their review and their execution. I know how it is and how time-consuming it is. So uh, this is really important data. And, and again, we've used Delphi. And I've always had I've always had my um, my concern about well, whether a Delphi process or modified Delphi process, you know, stood up to the rigors of uh, of, uh, of evaluation. And your data suggests that IPF it sure does. Um, and so very important. So how do you think? Um, it's going to impact the findings in this paper are going to impact future clinical guidelines in IPF, and and how do you think it will impact clinical practice guidelines for other conditions that, that, you know, ATS and our sister organizations are likely to publish in the future? Let me just mention really quick um, how this entire investigation got started, and that is that I was attending the um, 2015 IPF guideline meeting and we had presented the data and they had made the recommendations. And then somebody on the panel walked up to me afterwards and he said to me, he said, well, that was good work, but I could have told you the answer nine months ago. <laughs> so I, I started this investigation to kind of figure out whether or not indeed the systematic reviews are worth the time and effort and made a difference. And my initial hypothesis was that they were important, but my actual findings have been 
the opposite. Um, this study that we're talking about with IPF is actually a confirmatory study. There was one that we published um, two falls ago in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine where we actually looked at eight unpublished guidelines, did the core process, and compared the core recommendations to the recommendations from the eight guidelines, and there was 90% agreement amongst the recommendations. And I can tell you that we have one um, that we're going to submit for peer review looking at community-acquired pneumonia with similar findings. So in answer to your question, I do think that this goes beyond IPF. I, I do think that the, the modified Delphi process is a reasonable substitute in some cases um, for a systematic review. Uh, I don't think it's specific to, to IPF. And the ATS is going to look at it this fall as whether or not this process becomes incorporated as part of its allowable um, uh, guideline development uh, process. Great. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how the process evolves, uh, Kevin, but, but really, really very nice work. Um, so, Ganesh, I want to turn it back to you. And, and, and one of the things that uh, obviously we've developed at Penn and you at your own institutions and other expert centers is this whole idea of multidisciplinary discussions. And they clearly become standard, um, and we all find great value to them. But but how about for clinicians who don't have ready access to an academic center or to an MDD? So how crucial is it in those kinds of practices, and what, what other options do you think clinicians have, um, have with, with making, uh, you know, a proper and rigorous diagnosis of IPF? Can you, can you hypothesize about that or, or give your insights into that? Yeah. Uh, this, uh, again, is an important question in terms of how the multidisciplinary discussions are to be conducted. While it was clear that the multidisciplinary discussion is an important uh, step in a diagnostic algorithm for patients with interstitial lung disease, let alone idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the recommendations that were made based on the robust way of looking at the evidence was actually conditional because the quality of the evidence was very low. But it was for conditional for the multidisciplinary discussions. Now the question specifically is what compose or what are the components of the multidisciplinary discussion and is it practical to have every patient with interstitial lung disease be discussed in a multidisciplinary discussion? In a sense, there is a multidisciplinary discussion right from the beginning in clinical practice. You did we didn't call it multidisciplinary discussion. When, for example, what I mean is when we have a CT pattern, we invariably discuss it with the radiologist or the radiologist interpret it and we look at it. That right. itself is already a secondary discipline. Now what we are emphasizing is what you were doing, pay attention to the interpretation, and when you have discordance between you as a pulmonologist thinking and reviewing the CT, and if it doesn't match what the radiologist's interpretation by report says, then you discuss it with the multidisciplinary discussion format. And how you do that discussion could be in many different forms in this day and age of electronic era. It could be text. It could be fax copies. It could be telephones. So we didn't specifically say how the multidisciplinary discussions are to be done. We left it to the discretion and the practice for the local physicians and centers in the community, however way that they would want to approach the radiologist. They pick up the phone or talk or look at the packs in your clinic and ask the radiologist to look while you are speaking on the phone. So there is all kinds of ways to do the multidisciplinary discussion. 
But in regional centers such as yours and mine and others, we do have a formal multidisciplinary discussion and face-to-face in a didactic way. And even then, we don't necessarily discuss every single patient uh, to go through the multidisciplinary discussions. So bottom line is, I think multidisciplinary discussion is important. Uh, radiologist is important, pathologist is important. How you do it, it is left to the uh, individual clinical practice, whether pick up the phone or face-to-face. Perfect. Very well said. Last question, uh, Ganesh, and certainly, Kevin, uh, you can chime in as well. So give me a couple of take-home messages, the main take-home points about the diagnosis of IPF that you wanted to leave uh, for our listeners. Last question. I think the main question, main take-home message is the 2018 guidelines is provides the clinician a little bit more precision in terms of the UIP criteria. It also surfaces the need to discuss with the radiologist and other multidisciplinary services at several steps before deciding the surgical lung biopsy. We also state that the probable UIP pattern can be utilized to make a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis without the histopathology if a patient prefers such uh, as and if the clinician and the and the other physicians are comfortable with the diagnosis. So we give a little bit flexibility, or not a little bit, we give a flexibility for the patients to decide whether probable UIP should be subject to the surgical lung biopsy. I think we have provided a, a more accurate means of making a diagnosis, and the clinician should be able to make the diagnosis and utilize the new therapeutic interventions that are available for the patients to guide specific treatment in a timely manner. Thank you, Ganesh. Kevin, any, any last words or comments uh, on your part? I would just add one thing to kind of emphasize what Ganesh said. My take-home message would be that a conditional or a weak recommendation provides clinical equipoise and is not and should not be considered a mandate. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for adding that, Kevin. So, uh, again, I'd like to thank Drs. Ragu and Wilson so much for participating in the podcast. Uh, I certainly found this to be incredibly helpful in terms of the diagnosis of IPF and and, uh, clinical practice guideline generations in the future, and I hope you all did as well. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the APS. Thank you for listening.